Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I don't know if everybody caught an article, a very weird article in the New York Times about, I would say, a very weird lawyer perhaps hated by, I don't know, a lot of people, apparently, a, a roundly hated gentleman, Esquire, who defends dogs that have mauled or killed or destroyed people or other dogs. And I thought, well, who do I go to to find out what is the law about dogs? I mean, uh, have, have we all gone barking mad? And so I turned to Jeremy Cohen because he is the Boston dog lawyer, and he is really immersed in how to protect ourselves and our dogs legally. Jeremy, thanks for coming back on the show. And um, talk a little bit, if you would, about that article and, and what that meant to you as a as someone who specializes in dog law. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on again. And I hope you know, by the end of this, at least pet owners will have some, some tips and some knowledge that they didn't initially have. Yes. The, the article for me, when I'm out there talking to students or lawyers or anyone about the practice of pet law or dog law, it's important that they know this is, we're just in the beginning of this and we need more people. We need more lawyers. We need more law students. We need more people just in general and pet owners in general to know that there's resources for you now. And so the article that we read, it's it sort of focused on, I felt some of the negative things about being a dog lawyer and that sort of every, every day is a fight and save the world at all costs. That's not, I may have started out that way six or seven years ago, but I've, I've evolved because I've learned in order for this area of law to, to have credibility, to get the respect in the courts in the legislatures across the country, we need to be reasonable and not fanatical. And my thing is, instead of saving the dog world, I'm just trying to improve it. And improving it to me is that we hold people accountable to get to the right decisions the right way. And oftentimes it's my clients, Tracy, who I end up finding out need to be held accountable. Doesn't mean they can't continue to own pets when their pets do something wrong, but I'm okay holding my own clients accountable 
in certain scenarios to show that things will improve. And for instance, if we go to a dangerous dog hearing, the the focus for me at these hearings when I'm trying to protect uh, a pet owner and their dog from from um, all the ramifications that can happen, including death, I need to show that you can trust my client, that certainly mistakes were made, but you can trust them to be engaged in improving things, whether it's with the fence, training, muzzling, something where they have to show that they're committed to it. And I won't take on a client if they're not willing to acknowledge that they're that in certain circumstances, they're part of the problem when it comes to dangerous dogs, that some mistake was made and they need to improve it or they need to improve how they manage their dog. That's just a fact for all of us. I have my nine-year-old golden retriever, Maisie, who gets away with so much because I don't manage her properly. Everything <laughs> she does is with, is with love and with those big brown eyes. But still, I know I can be a better manager of my dog tomorrow than I am today. And I kind of insist on that um, with my clients and with the pet industry in general. They need to be better with our animals tomorrow than they are today. So it's just about holding people accountable to improve behavior. Well, I have a Maisie, too. She's a, a nine-year-old blue wine runner. And when we say that they get away with, with stuff, we don't want to use the phrase they get away with murder. So if your Maisie or my Maisie manages to steal a pound of butter, because some wonderful dog trainers I knew, the husband had left the, uh, the stick of butter. It was only a quarter of a pound on the counter. And the golden retriever got it. And I don't know, you know, who's bad there? I mean... Dogs will jump on a counter, but will they kill children? And I guess, I mean, that's sort of the the line that, or will they maul and kill somebody else's dog? And what does provoked even mean? I mean, pet dogs should not be provocable to that point. Or as you say, they have to be contained and maintained. There's a, a lot of guard breeds of dogs. Pit bulls get a really bad rap. And unfortunately, a lot of recent maulings have involved pairs of pit bulls against people that they lived with and knew. But many breeds of dogs have a very strong drive to attack or defend or in their whatever might happen in their own minds, and the people have not taken responsibility. But it's interesting to hear from a lawyer. We, we think of defense lawyers who say everyone devo- in, in humans, human law, de- deserves a defense, even this murderous, rapist, you know, of massacre person, but you don't believe that about dogs. You're saying that if it, if a dog has done something really terrible, what is wrong with the management of that dog? And if you don't change it, I won't take your case. Is that sort of what you're saying? Unlike the guy that the article was written about, who was just all about, I'll defend any dog, no matter what it's done, no matter what the circumstances. So uh, I think you've captured it for me. And you'll notice I did not say that my Maisie, uh, I, she gets away, but I didn't say with murder because I just, my personal philosophy with this law firm and with Boston Dog Lawyers is that I won't take a case if a person is killed. So um, I, I don't, I just can't really be concerned about the circumstances so much as Good I can't you. take a case where somebody's killed for, for the reason that that pet law is still in its infancy. We're just starting to get some respect. We're just right. starting to see some progression. And I'm concerned that we become looked at as fanatics if we just take every case and try to save every dog. The reality is some dogs 
despite all the best tools we have, just can't be rehabilitated. And while it's often the owner's fault, some dogs are so far beyond anything that can be fixed that they have to be euthanized. And it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to say that. But I think without that, I would be far less successful than I am in saving dogs' lives if I didn't have that philosophy. Because people on the other side need to know that we get it. We get the seriousness of it and of, of what these dogs are capable of. And I think if you just say it doesn't matter, every dog should live and we should find a way to make it work, I, I think people stop listening to you. And the people I'm talking about are judges, uh, local city officials, right, and and other lawyers who need to join this this area of law. If you scare them away with some fanaticism, um, I, I know I wouldn't be in, I wouldn't come into this if I knew that um, the goal is just you know, burn every just just do whatever you have to do to win because that's not going to be good for the legacy of Boston dog lawyers because there should be a firm like this for people in every state doesn't have to be me or my name, but, and I just think if we're not credible now, we're, we're, it's not going to happen as soon as it should in terms of getting the respect that pet owners deserve in court. Cause we're really, we're a pet owner's rights firm. We're not an animal rights firm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a big distinction. And you said that there are pet law attorneys in many other States, some of whom, you work with collaboratively, and you can also work with dog owners in other states. You aren't constrained to just the state of Massachusetts because you're based in Boston, right? Right. And I've developed relationships with other lawyers in other states because we get calls from all over the country. In fact, from other countries, too, because there is a need for, for lawyers, for pet owners. And there's certain ways through the law that you can wave into a state or work a particular case. Um, uh, without, you know, without violating any ethical constraints that are put on us. So if someone calls, if I can't help them and they're in another state, I, I'm not going to just let them, I'm not just going to say I can't help you. I'm going to try to find somebody for them. Nice. Well, one of the things that I know you've been working on is how to protect pet owners who are using boarding facilities and dog walking facilities and pet sitters. Can we talk about that a little bit? I think one of the one of the problems for humans, all of us, is that we don't like to think of risk. So even though we have to have car insurance, people, very few people have pet insurance, and I spend massive amounts of time saying, please get pet insurance. It will happen to you. That dog or cat is going to get sick or injured and vet bills are high. They certainly don't think about what would the risk be if they leave their dog at a boarding facility and then you read, well, the only thing they'll give you back if your dog is injured or killed and, oh, gee, sorry about the whatever the incident may have been at a boarding facility where your dog was severely injured or died, all we can give you is the open market cost of such a dog. So, you know, you have a, a mixed breed dog from a shelter. That'll be $25. What can people do to protect themselves when using services, which I guess should be bonded and insured themselves? Uh, well, number one is if you have pet insurance, it takes the decision-making out of it when it comes to having to, you don't have to decide whether you can afford or not exactly. any type of surgery or procedure for your pet. 
And I think I've recently been told a statistic that only two to three percent right. of pet insurance. That that's not right. It's not fair to the pet. That's that's we have a duty and obligation to these animals. And part of that is now needs to incorporate insurance because it's not fair that pets are the, these economic euthanizations where they have to be put down because the pet owner can't afford the services. I understand that. And I understand that that system and with veterinarians and they're not going to do the work unless they're paid, but there's an option out there with pet insurance and Thank you it's for like getting- helping me to hammer that home. I've been completely ineffectual at changing the 2 to 3% American national rate, so I guess I'm not as powerful an influencer as I had hoped. <laughs> but let's well, talk can- about, about the kind of legal insurance, if you will, sure. the kind of protection that you should think of if you're going to use facilities where somebody other than you looks after your dog or even walks them in a, alone or in a pack. Well, one thing pet owners need to know is these facilities and these dog walkers, they've already thought about the risk. And you have probably signed something telling them not to worry about Ooh, it. Good in point. The sense that, um, because they know the things that can happen. In most states right now, boarding facilities, doggy daycares, whether they're overnight or not, they're not licensed. They may be have a, a license to, to have a business. They may have a license to have a particular business in a, in an area, but they're not licensed in the sense that you have certain criteria you have to follow as a boarding facility. Some states are way ahead, but most don't regulate this. And there's powerful lobbyists who try to keep it that way. And it's so state legislators, as far as we've gone, I get a mulling call when I first, um, started to pursue legislation with a group here. It was on behalf of clients whose dog was mauled, totally avoidable. And there was one every 14 days I would get a call. And after fighting with the legislature for a year and a half and them not passing anything to protect our pets and pet owners at these facilities, uh, I now get a call one every eight days, dogs being killed or or significantly harmed at boarding facilities. And it's because they don't regulate. I just gave a talk to IPSA, the International Boarding and Pet Services Association, and implored people to self-regulate. Show that you you adhere to some to a high standard that pet owners would want to know about. For instance, you're probably signing something when you you have your dog or cat stay there that says you you are waiving any claims to liability if anything happens to your pet. That means you are telling them, don't worry about it. So if they don't have to worry about it, if there's no fear, I believe their behavior is not going to be to the highest standard. And I'm sorry to say that fear motivates, but we know that it does. Fear of a lawsuit, fear of being called out, doing something wrong, it motivates. And when you're signing up, you're so happy you found a place, your dog seems to like it. You're not reading every one of the paragraphs that they have you initial, but you are signing away rights that in in most cases cannot be retrieved. And what I'm talking about, the the things that can happen, does your boarding facility, if they say they keep your pets overnight, do they have somebody who staffs it overnight? I'd say less than 50% actually have a staff member overnight. And they're supposed to tell you, but there's there's no real supposed to do anything because they're not regulated. It would just be, um, 
like a consumer benefit that they would share with you. Oh yeah, we keep your pets here overnight, but we don't have anyone on site. You want somebody on site. You don't want someone saying, well, I live right down the road so I can be there in two minutes. A fire can happen in much of course and dogs can bloat and or they can get their paw their snout stuck in the bars of the cage jeremy we've jumped around on so many fabulous topics i just want to get to the punchline of this before our time runs out is there a document that people should bring with them and have the boarding place sign it rather than you signing away your rights that's a great question i don't know that that I think that would be too much for them to handle, but I know some of the things you should do when I is you should have a video of your pet before or as you're going in, pictures of your pet, and you should have a vet report on hand for yourself before your pet goes in there. So try to get your pet to the vet within the 30 to you know, two to four weeks before you, you're going away or, or park your pet there. And so you know what the baseline or the status of your animal was when it was going in there. Cause oftentimes they'll defend it by saying you brought your dog in that way, which is trying to say you brought your dog in bleeding with a wound from its leg. It's ridiculous, but they will say this. And okay. I'm think- just going to jump ahead. Cause again, our time is running short. Yeah. We don't want to think of too many nightmare scenarios, but what I'm hearing is there are a lot of nightmare scenarios and It's just an area that no one has stopped to think about. I'd rather they didn't have to hire you to try and fight these places after the fact, after something horrible has happened. I think really um, we just need to say that this is something that someone could call you about at Boston Dog Lawyers and get your best advice on what they should do if they're going to board their dog or even use a dog walking service. You could help them think ahead about some of these things. I'm sorry that we've run out of time, but it's a really important area. It's full of scary ideas, but the solutions may have to involve a a preliminary chat with Jeremy at Boston Dog Lawyers or any pet law attorney you may have nearby. Don't take it for granted that it's a safe place for your pet just because they were happy this time. Dogs can come back really sick and well, again, fear mongering is not what I usually do, but it's an area that I'm really glad you're working on and making people aware of in many other states. Jeremy, thanks for the good work you're doing on behalf of pet owners, because those are your clients at the end of the day. Boston Dog Lawyers is a great flag bearer for the field. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients 
and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.